0: Rudder lovers, my name is Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back.
1: So this one is about John Edward Robinson. I'm just gonna go ahead and jump right in. I don't know that name. Good. Okay, yeah, great. AKA the Internet Slave Master. <laughs> oh yeah i already don't want it (laughs) so i got this uh one of my biggest references was a book that i got from my little brother and his girlfriend for christmas so shout out to both of you was intrigued by the story so i definitely looked into it for you guys so to start off i'm gonna give you a little background on john edwards sorry john edward robinson he was born in 1943 in illinois he was the middle of five children. His mother was known for being tough, and his father was an abusive alcoholic. All good signs. Started off great. Yep. In his early life, though, he was an Eagle Scout. He was said to be an elite future leader and was overly pompous after the ceremony because they told him this at the ceremony. Okay. Okay. He was part of a group that went to London to perform in front of Queen Elizabeth II. Ooh, that's kind of a big deal. That is fancy. Yeah. He was accepted to the Quigley Preparatory. Nope. To <laughs> the he was accepted to the Quigley Prep Seminary. He was. This was a five year course for young men who planned to become a priest later in life. He was kicked out. Only after being there for a year for disciplinary reasons. when he was, But they don't
0: say what they are? No. Mm, they, I think it
1: was just unsubordination type things. I, I'll bet not. Probably not, but they're probably... Was it an all-boys school? Yes. Mm-hmm. Pretty tight-lipped about what actually happened. I couldn't find anything about that. bet
0: you he was into some dirty stuff. Maybe. Was he into dirty stuff later in life? Yes, then i bet it started there. He
1: is on a podcast about true crime. Yeah, so, yep. Well, it doesn't mean he's into
0: dirty stuff, but um, they always are.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when he was 18 years old, he started schooling to be an X-ray technician, but dropped out only after two years in 1964. When he turned 21, he moved to Kansas City. This is where he met his wife Nancy Joe. Good old Nancy Joe. Nancy Joe. And by 1971. They had had four children, a boy, a girl, and a set of twin boys. Twins. Yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, we've had a lot of twin stories Pray we? for
0: the parents that have twins. So in
1: 1969, two years before his twin boys were born, John was arrested for the first time in his life. He had forged the credentials of being an x-ray tech and had landed a job at the medical practice ran by Dr. Graham. He embezzled thirty-three thousand dollars during his time working there. Whoa! He was caught and sentenced to three years of probation. While he was still on probation, John picked up and moved to Kansas City from Kansas City to Chicago, without the permission or knowledge of his parole officer. That's always a mistake. That's not a good idea.
0: No, you're not allowed to do that. They
1: literally need to know your every move. Yep. So stupid. But he got a job as an insurance salesman and was once again caught embezzling money. He was arrested in 1971 and extradited back to Kansas City, and they also reviewed and extended his probation at that point. He didn't seem to be able to keep honest work and he started running a fake medical consulting company called Professional Services Association and running various mail fraud schemes. He was caught and arrested again. His probation was once again extended. So he's running this life of fraud and embezzling. So Those
0: are, I mean, yeah, they suck, but nonviolent crimes.
1: That's true. They're not victimless crimes, but... No,
0: they're not victimless crimes, but...
1: No one's getting murdered at this point. Nobody's died yet. (laughs) Right. But did you die, though? (laughs) (laughs) So even during this entire time of him being on probation, he kept up appearances and seemed to be a contributing member of his society. He was a scoutmaster for a local Boy Scouts group. He became a baseball coach, and he had the audacity to become a Sunday school teacher.
0: Precious.
1: At a Presbyterian church, even though he was Catholic and dressed up for Santa during the holidays for the neighborhood children. So he seemed to be right. This great guy participates almost in every aspect
0: of his community. He's like, listen, I know that I'm on parole and everything like that. But have your children heard about the word of Jesus, our Lord and Savior?
1: (laughs) Sit on my lap. Let me tell you.
0: (laughs) Come tell Santa what you want for Christmas. Pop up here on my knee. <laughs> <laughs> so by
1: 1977, he finagled his way up the ladder in a local charity organization for handy for handicapped people, and was eventually placed on the board of directors. While he was on the board, he forged letters that praised him for his involvement in the community. These
0: he forged letters about himself. Absolutely. Well, he does Just do about identity thefts.
1: So some of these letters (laughs) supposedly came from the mayor and the mayor's executive director. He forged a letter from the director of the mayor's office saying that that there was a luncheon coming up and that he was to attend because they were going to be presenting him with the man of the year award for his community involvement. Mm. (laughs) Uh, So who was he he showing these letters to? It's to the charity organization, Okay, so everyone showed up to this banquet, and he, of course, is the winner of this of this award. He's the recipient of it. And oh, he actually got the award. He, he made up. He put together the banquet. He put, oh, yeah. Did he the governor know about that? So eventually, the director from the mayor's office got wind of this because it was in the newspapers and this <laughs> oh is when they started God. peeling back the onion the layers of him being someone that was forging papers from the that's mayor's that's hilarious office. right? come so, to the banquet in
0: honor of me <laughs>
1: right so they exposed them as a fraud at that point that idea of him being a fraudster eventually fizzled out. He's eventually discharged from his probation. And his probation officer on the release report writes a stunning report about him.
0: They always do.
1: Why? I don't know. I think it was just because he wanted to sever all ties of being his parole officer. I mean,
0: the board that wrote the great review about Ed Kemper when he had a head oh, in his car.
1: Yuck. Yuck. He had this time where he was still doing the coaching, doing all these things in the community. He eventually became an employee and the manager at Guy's Food, so a local grocery chain. He had an affair with the secretary that helped him also embezzle thousands of dollars by making fake employees, making checks out to them and cashing said checks. Wow, this guy just doesn't stop. No, he's full of get-rich-quick quick schemes. schemes. Yeah. He's eventually fired from Guy's Food and charged with a felony theft, for submitting false vouchers, and for four of the forged checks. Robinson had to pay back over $41,000 in restitution. Wow, he didn't even really make that much, then. That's not a lot.
0: It's really not. That's not even, like, a really... Especially
1: if you spread it out. Like, anyway... And yep. you're splitting it maybe with that secretary? Not a lot, potentially. So in 1982, he started a new consulting company called Equa Plus. And he finds a partner in crime, Irv Blattner. And they start another company called Equa Two. Okay. <laughs> it is reported that he was a skeezy guy, obviously, and began approaching and propositioning his neighbor's wives. One of these times, the encounter led to a fist fight with one of the gonna other husbands. I going to say, how did husbands. one
0: of these husbands not pop him a good one? And
1: they sure did. Hell yeah. So that fizzles out again. People mm-hmm. just keep putting it as one-off situations. What is he propositioning them for? Sex. Okay, I figured. But yes. I just wanted to make that clear. So he's vulgar with them. He's asking them to have sex, I guess. Um, or... Being, just oh, gross. It sounds like he was a gross guy. I'll It'd give you like, more details.
0: Honey. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you have somebody Come at the door for box. you. Yeah. <laughs> so Robinson runs a duplex in the name of his company, Equa 2 and turns it into a brothel. <laughs> he just went for it.
0: Because what else do you do when the neighbor women are turning you down?
1: You just start a fucking brothel. I guess so. So he hires Linda Stevens Jones to run it and finds other girls to join. The brothel specialized in rough S&M sex. Wow. Yep.
0: Okay. It was. Did I ever tell you that I have back several generations. There's a brothel owner in there somewhere. We have mm. a, I have a madam
1: Ooh. on my side
0: of the family. Which is always so much more interesting to me than male brothel owners. Yes. The madams that run it. Those, those are the their characters. their sexuality and they're just... I don't even know that they're owning their sexuality. I mean, they're still just as much creeps as the men. But the fact that women would victimize other women is very interesting to me. Very. Yeah.
1: So he opened up this brothel and, again, under the name, I guess, paperwork-wise for his Equitu company. Right. So he also made it known to some people... And I don't know if these were friends or just people in passing, but that he had recently joined a secret cult that circled around pseudomasochism called International Council of Masters. Probably not people in <laughs>
0: passing that he sent that to.
1: Well, he's a weirdo.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously.
1: And he he told him that he had become a certified slave master. And as a slave master, he claimed that his duties included luring victims to go to their cult meetings so they would be subjected to torture and rape by the members. Your face right now. That's what
0: he was bragging about to people casually? Yes. Yes. Sounds like he got to like the highest level on a creepy video game. And he loved it. Yeah, clearly. So in 1980... Is this cult a real thing?
1: You know what? I didn't even Google it because my brain was not going there. Because if he's such a fraud and
0: he makes things up, I would be very interested to know if this was actually a real thing.
1: So it might not be, it might not be real. So in September of 1984, Paula Godfrey, a 19 year old, answered an advertisement for a secretary position for Equit She took the job and she was led to believe that the job would entail a lot of traveling something that she was excited to do as a 19-year-old yeah but john robinson picked her up at the house picked her up at her house to take her to the airport so she would begin her travels she was never seen again
0: i was going to say that's a that's a bad sign awful don't don't let your boss come pick you up at your house
1: A couple of weeks later, her parents received a letter telling them that she was off traveling the world and wanted to have minimized contact with them because she was off finding herself. Let me guess. This was
0: not in the character of their daughter.
1: (sighs) Her mother, of course, knew that something was wrong and filed a missing persons report.
0: Good job, Mom. Mine went too. In
1: 1985, so a little less than a year later, in Oberlin, Kansas... Lisa Stacy was a 19-year-old woman, and she was married to a man named Carl. They had a baby named Tiffany Lynn. Carl and Lisa had marital problems. They got a divorce when baby Tiffany was about four months old, and Carl moved back to Chicago to reenlist in the Navy. Lisa found herself jobless and homeless with a four-year-old, sorry, four-month-old baby. Four days before her disappearance, spoiler alert, Lisa found exactly what she was looking for in an outreach program that was supposed to help young women, young mothers, get a new start in life. This program was funded by John Osborne. John Osborne picked up Lisa and baby Tiffany from her mother-in-law's house and put them up in a hotel for the night under the ruse of this being the interim place while finding permanent housing for her and the baby. That same night that she was picked up and taken to the hotel, Lisa called her mother-in-law, Betty, in a panic. Lisa was telling Betty that, quote, they were telling her that she was not a fit mother and that, Betty was trying to take the baby away from her. Lisa also told Betty that they had made her sign four blank sheets of paper. And Lisa is a confused young woman at this point. She's panicked. She's being told that her mother in law is trying to take her baby. Right. The mother in law is telling her, Don't sign anything else. Don't sign anything over. I'm, of course, not trying to do this. You know, We Mm -hmm. sent you off tonight thinking that you were finding shelter, that you were finding a better life, so don't sign anything else. Right. Lisa's last words on the phone were, here they come, and the phone hung up. Oh, no.
0: That would just make you ill, I would think.
1: Panicked. Yeah. So, Betty and her husband call the hotel looking to speak with Lisa. They were told that they had already checked out and that the bill was paid for by a credit card to a business that was known as Equitu. They were surprised to learn that the name signed on the receipt was not that of a John Osborne, but John Robinson. Hmm. So Lisa's brother in law gets right on it and he starts looking further into the Equitu business. He's quickly pushed out the door. And not allowed to ask any questions. So he shows up to the address that the equity is registered to, mm-hmm. and he's quickly just told he has leave. to leave. Yeah. Lisa's family private property, blah blah right, blah. Exactly. So Lisa's family received a call from a quote Father Martin from a local mission, and he said that he was just calling the family to put them at ease. That Lisa had spent the night there. And that she and the baby were safe. The Father Martin person told the in-laws that Lisa had confided in him. That Mm -hmm. she had found the new boyfriend. And that she was running away with this new boyfriend and the baby for a better life. Right. Because
0: that's how you get the
1: better life. No. And later that same day, the in-laws went to the mission to see if there was any record of her staying there. Just to verify the story, they confirmed that exactly what they feared. Not only was there no record of Lisa and the baby checking in or checking out, but they have never heard of a father Martin there. It was at this point that there was a missing persons report filed both for her and baby Tiffany. So the police investigation led them, of course, to interview John. John told them that the day after putting Lisa and the baby up at the hotel Lisa showed up to his office with baby Tiffany in tow and also a new boyfriend who was introduced to him as Bill and that she told him that although she appreciated the opportunity to be part of this outreach program, her, Bill, and the baby were going to be running off and starting a new life together. Because there was no crime scene, no body, the case kind of just went cold. Right. Right. But then all of a sudden, the women's shelter and the mother-in-law, Betty, started receiving letters from Lisa. Hmm. The letters were typed and they had some reoccurring theme that her and the baby were fine and that they were trying to make things work and trying to start a new life. No mention of this boyfriend Bill was ever in those letters and although they were typed, they had her signature at the bottom. Now, remember, at the hotel, blank papers, they made her sign about four sheets of blank paper at the bottom. With no other leads or information, the case starts going cold. I will say, though,
0: if I'm sending a letter to my mom, I'm not signing it. Like, I don't put a signature on there, you know? Yeah. I would put, like, Ken's or something like that. Right. But I wouldn't, like, put a full signature on the bottom. My mom would be like, that's weird.
1: That is weird. Yeah. Right, because it's not a good document. Right. So, but yeah, I mean, the in-laws and the shelter all thought it was weird. So, what John actually did was that he called his brother, Don, from Chicago and told him that he had found the perfect baby for him to adopt his brother and sister in law were looking to adopt the baby around the same time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But he told them that they needed to get to Kansas City as soon as possible. Don and his wife, Helen, drove down to Kansas City the same night and returned with a beautiful four month old baby, Tiffany. Oh, isn't that lovely? John charged his brother $5,500 in lawyer's fees for setting up the adoption. All of these papers, of course, are forged. Obviously.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this adoption isn't legal. No.
1: So I'm telling you this now just so we know the baby's safe at this point. Right. Okay. Albeit fraudulently being handed over to a new couple, but still safe. So in June of 1987... 27-year-old Catherine Clampett answered an ad, as you can see there's a trend starting here, to be an executive secretary to a company CEO. She moved to the Overland Park area and begins working for a man that she knows as John Dawson. After a couple of weeks of being in town, no one is hearing from her like like they normally would. Her brother, who also lives in the area and was giving her temporary housing while she got on her feet, reports that she's not coming home anymore. He goes to the company and asks to speak with her or her boss, John Dawson, and is told that there is no employee there by either of those names. So he's told right off the bat, there's no one here Mm -hmm. named Catherine Clampett or John Dawson. He goes through her belongings that are still at his house. Yeah. And he finds a receipt from the hotel from one of her first nights in town and finds that the signature on the receipt is that of John Robinson. So he's an idiot. But I mean, I mean luckily, he's an idiot. Right. So the brother did a quick search and found that the business that John Robinson owned in the area was known as Equitou. The brother went to the address that Equitude was registered to and found that the business was closed and that John Robinson was actually currently in jail for fraud. Okay. Shortly after, Catherine's mom in Chicago receives letters from Catherine Mm -hmm. telling her that everything was going well. These letters, again, were typed with a signature at the bottom. The mom and the brother went ahead and filed a missing persons report for Catherine at that point. So that was 1987. So we're going to jump to 1993. So some time goes by, about six years go by. And at this point, Beverly Bonner met John Robinson during his time at the Missouri prison. She was responsible for the library in the facility. And John was made to be her assistant. The two became friends. She and John had actually met... 20 years prior, having worked at the same company in Kansas City. Once John was released from prison, he offered Beverly the job of running his company, HydroGlow. He's made a new company. Sounds like someplace where you'd get a facial. (laughs) HydroGlow. And Beverly agreed. John set up a home in Florida. Beverly divorced her husband, Dr. William Bonner, after he found out that she was having an affair with John during his prison sentence. Mm -hmm. And she moved to Florida to be with John, who, he was still married, so he still hasn't divorced Nancy Joe. Right. Beverly's family never saw her again. Her ex-husband would receive the occasional typed letter bearing her signature, telling them that the company was sending her on various assignments around the world, traveling to Australia, across Europe. And she only gave him a new address in one of these letters to a post office box to where he's supposed to be sending her alimony. And Mr. Bonner never doubted the authenticity of these letters. However, he did think it was very odd in December of 1995 that Beverly did not attend the funeral of their older son, oldest son, Randy. He assumed that she must have been on some important company business. No. 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 No company business is more important than that. William. You should have known better. Yep. So Beverly Bonner was never seen again, but her mother continued to send Beverly her alimony checks to a mailbox and to a business called The Mailroom. It sounds like a seedy bar. It's awful. Yeah. A man only known as John whist Sheila Dale Faith and her daughter, Debbie Lynn, from Pueblo, Colorado, after meeting Sheila through an ad. She had been depressed since her first husband, John, died in 1991. Sheila was left to raise her 15-year-old disabled daughter, Debbie, on her own. Sheila fell deeply in love with her knight in shining armor, such that she announced to her friends and family that she and Debbie were going to move in with him and go to Kansas. So they were uprooting from Colorado, moving to Kansas for love. All these
0: people that are just running away to start a new life.
1: Her friends were shocked by the sudden decision and warned her that it sounded a little too good to be true. But Sheila would not listen, and in the summer of 1994, John arrived at Sheila's steps to help her move into his house. John portrayed himself as a wealthy man who would support Sheila and Debbie, pay for the therapy that Debbie needed, and give Sheila a job. Shortly after they left for Kansas, Sheila's brother, William Howell, received the first of many typed letters signed by Sheila, telling him what a wonderful time she was having, but William was suspicious and asked the Social Security... Department? administration administration, to track down his sister and niece via the social security checks that were being supposedly received for Debbie's disability. However, the administrators refused to give such information because it was considered private. In the fall of 1994, the social security administration received a typed letter signed by Dr. William Bonner informing them that Debbie was now completely disabled and required full-time care. Now remember William Dr. William Bonner was Beverly's husband. Okay. This so is in- a lot of moving parts. Yes. So because now this forged letter says that Debbie requires full-time care, that increases the amount that Debbie is receiving mm-hmm. as a monthly disability check. Those checks were all being forwarded to a mailbox at the mailroom, the same place as Beverly Bonner's checks. Right. For years, the Social Security Administration continued to send these checks to the Missouri Post Office that they had been given us a new address. Every month, John Robinson was the one that came by and picked up all the checks made out to Bonner and to Debbie Faith. Right. Okay. John had collected enough money from Bonner's alimony checks and from Debbie's Social Security to put $95,000 down for a house for his son and new grandchildren on Big Pine Key, Florida. John is known as a dirty old man in his neighborhood. (laughs) There's reports that he crept around the trailer park slowly driving around by trailers on a golf cart when he knew that the husbands were out for some women. John and his wife, Nancy Joe, moved into a mobile home in the Santa Barbara Estates. He spent a lot of time in front of his five computers researching BDSM, if you need to know what that is. It's yeah. bondage, discipline, sadomasochism. It's violent sex, you guys. yes. There's no just little kinky stuff. It's full blown. Yeah. Um, so he spent hours on the internet looking at this, uh, researching it, or just searching for it, I guess. Uh, in late 1997, so this is getting closer and closer, John became acquainted online with a freshman at Purdue University named Isabella Loica, a Polish immigrant living in... Indiana, with her parents, both of whom were university professors. So in the fall of 1997, Isabella told her parents that she was dropping out of school and that she was moving to Kansas City, where a rich entrepreneur had offered her an internship. Nope. Within nine months of the initial contact, Isabella moved away from her family home in Indiana to be near John in Kansas City. Isabella had also signed a 115-item slave contract with John. Ew. A fact that, of course, she did not tell her parents. Right. She never returned home and communicated with her parents only through email. Isabella told her friends that she and John were going on a trip and would be gone for an extended period of time. She was never seen again. John told a web designer that he had hired that she had been caught marijuana and had been deported. So Isabella's parents continued to get emails from their daughter until John was eventually arrested. Because at this time in neither of the previous disappearances or missing person reports was there any evidence of a crime being committed, there were no links to be made. And again, this is pre-technology times, at least some of the older ones um, where people went missing. So there was no correlation between the missing persons, and there was no dots being connected at this point. This so, seems a little crazy to me
0: that nobody had put some of these pieces together.
1: Well, they were coming from a little all over the place. We've got Colorado, Florida, yeah, Illinois, But all
0: leading to some guy in Kansas. Correct. With this Equitube business. Or the mailroom.
1: Right. And the case of Catherine Clampett, like the case of Lisa, Baby Tiffany, and Paula Godfrey all went cold. And more than 10 years passed. At this point, Suzette Troughton had experience with the BDSM scene for several years, particularly in the... Gorian practices, I did not look it up. If you want to look it up, you are more than welcome to.
0: You didn't? No. Not my thing. I mean, not my thing either, but I'm curious. But not curious in a way that, like...
1: If I go it, I'm afraid <laughs> it's going to be, like, Pornhub right off the bat. Oh, like,
0: that's true. So,
1: I, it's not even going to be, like, a wiki page on, like, what it is. It's going to be full-on videos. And I'm like, oh, I don't know.
0: Well, Gorian... What does that mean? Well, that makes me think it's like gore related, right? How is it spelled? Gore, A-N. Oh, okay. That's not
1: actually bad. Is it like a geographical thing? No.
0: So this is like the practice of social orders. Um, This is very much like the, if she specializes in Gorin or whatever, she specializes in dominance. That type of thing. So the dominant and the submissive role. Got it. Yeah. Okay.
1: That's exactly what she did. And I'll just put out, I'll take out the part where you said you were going to cool it. Just going to put that in like you knew it. I'm just kidding. Don't put that in there
0: (laughs) like I knew it. I don't want people to think I knew that off the top of my head. It actually, um, in parentheses, says here, slave master subculture. Oh, okay. So. Cool. Which is his nickname. Cool,
1: cool, 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 cool. No, and and mean, now it, I'm and going it, to delete that. <laughs> so it says exactly that, that it's, um, both it says, you know, particularly in Gorian practices, becoming the slave to several masters. Oh, to several masters and using the internet to find willing partners.
0: It's creepy.
1: So this is,
0: I mean, do whatever you this do is one under consent, but right. So in
1: 1989, Suzette met a man on the internet in a chat room who went by the name of J.R., who described himself as a wealthy businessman from Kansas City. After several months of contacting him by email, J.R. made a job proposition to her to be a nurse for his diabetic father and travel around the world together. So he wanted to take his dad with him, but he wanted a nurse to be with him at the same time. But she, but he, of course, suggested... Hey, come over first. I want to make sure that you get along well with my dad, with me, since we're going to be spending so much time together. Did she meet him in a BDSM chat room? That's what it sounds like. So they met
0: in a chat room for crazy, rough, violent sex, and they were like, hey, I need a nurse for my dad. Yes.
1: Okay. Yep. Seems legit. Straight quote. Got it. Robinson.
0: Direct quote.
1: So John promised her sixty thousand dollars a year if she would take care of his wheelchair-bound father, and in addition of the sixty thousand dollars a year, John promised that Suzette and his father would be traveling around the world together. So that was the huge perk of the job, right? You know, uh, you just traveling nurse. So Suzette told her family that she was going to be moving to Kansas and that she was going to be taking care of a businessman's ailing father while he was traveling. There was huge allure to the job. Yep. And she moved to Kansas City right after to work for JR. Before she was to depart from Michigan, she left John's name and phone number with her mother, Carolyn, with whom she was very close. Prior to her leaving it sounded like they had a very close relationship. They talked on the phone almost daily. Mm -hmm. So it was very common for them to talk hours on the phone. Uh, Most people do that with their moms. So for the next two weeks, Suzette rented an apartment on John's credit card. He would visit regularly explaining that he had some business deals to conclude before she could, she could begin her new job as the nurse the pair had regular sex and taking photographs of the moments when they were having sex. Okay. Here's this weird part she would email those pictures to her friend, Crystal. <laughs>
0: what? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm, this story is very confusing to There's me. There's a lot going on. I'm like, are they in on like, I don't know.
1: So it's, well, I'll get to that. But so the emails between the two friends, uh, Suzette and Crystal would continue long after March 1st, when Suzette disappeared and no one else had contact with her. The emails suddenly changed after that. Um, she, Suzette no longer talked about past friendships or events in her life. All correspondents would talk about how good her life was and how happy her boss and new master made her, to her, fr- at least to the crystal friend. I hope
0: I have no friends that ever do that to me.
1: All the emails were signed, Seuss, which is a nickname that no one ever called her, so he fucked up there. So, Crystal was uh, continued receiving the emails from her friend, Suze. She explained that because her master was treating her so well, she wanted Crystal to experience a, a relationship similar to hers.
0: Crystal was like, nah, girl, I'm good.
1: Crystal was highly suspicious <laughs> that it was not her friend sending her the emails. And so, to expose the author, Crystal decided to play along. A man named JT, who said he was stern, but a fair master soon contacted her. Crystal noticed that the email style was very similar to those sent from Sue's and suspected that they were from the same person. After a few weeks of playing along with her master, JT, Crystal began receiving phone calls from him, and then a new contact began emailing her. A second male named Tom began emailing her and offering to be Crystal's master. But again, she was suspicious. Tom gave Crystal a series of phone numbers with which he could be contacted with at any time. Using a police friend, Crystal had the numbers traced. Each of them led back to John Robinson. So go, Crystal.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, if your friend starts sending you sexual photos of her having sex with some guy that she calls her master, that should be your first clue. Something's not right. But if
1: it's consensual though, if she's alive in the pictures, what are you going to do? Don't send me these. Well, yeah, don't send me them, but you're alive.
0: But the weird thing is, is that she's sending those photos to her friend who isn't even part of this culture. It's like after the fact that she's like, hey, suggestion for you maybe you should give it a try like that. I thought maybe they were into the same thing, and they're clearly not no it's it doesn't sound like they are to all my friends out there, please don't ever send me photos <laughs> like that. Thank you so much
1: so Carolyn Trouton, which is Suzette's mother, received several type letters from Suzette. so say memo that were allegedly written while she traveled abroad but had Kansas City postmarks on them and A funny thing that her mom noticed was that there was almost no mistakes on the letter with using a typewriter, which she said that Suzette wasn't efficient with. Yeah. So. She didn't know how to use one. Right. Right. Well, she was not good at spelling either, though. So that's Uh, how the mom knew that it wasn't her daughter. That's fair. (laughs) i
0: mean i mean you know your kid you know your kid i mean <laughs> yeah there are certain the people around you that they spell <laughs> things a certain way and you go wait a minute
1: after the mom stopped hearing from suzette the mom called all the telephone numbers that her daughter had given her and was surprised that john robinson answered the phone. after all the letters said to her that they were traveling together. So it wasn't too much of a surprise to her that John picked up the phone. Mm-hmm. But when John answered, he gave, this, he gave the mom an elaborate story that Suzette had stolen money from him, had met a new guy, had ran away, <laughs> never actually showed up to do the job that she was supposed to do, and he hadn't seen her since. So at that point, of course, the mother called and filed a missing persons report. Right. So John moved on to another victim. He started sending money to a woman named Vicki, who was a laid off psychologist from Texas who had been suffering from depression and had not had a really good relationship up at this point to up until this point. Police had put a tap on John's phone at this point, and were aware of him contacting Vicki. Mm-hmm. When she visited him over Easter weekend, police listened in the next room of a hotel while John and Vicky engaged in very rough sex. So at this point, Vicky is consensually meeting him and having sex. Yeah, but, John forced her into sex acts that Vicky did not consent to, took photos when she was tie- tied up despite her explicit instructions to not do that, and slapped her much harder than she had expected. These acts constituted sexual battery. In addition, John left her without any money, and alone in a strange city for several days before returning. So he was leaving her in the hotel, coming back, having his way, leaving, and leaving her there again. When he came back, he ordered Vicki to return to Texas to await further instructions, but kept the $500 worth of sex toys and s props that she had brought with her from Texas. Keep this in your back pocket, okay. because we're... Sticking theft, uh, theft on him, too. <laughs> okay. So, moves on from Vicky. We're just so many women. I'm gonna women. say. I know. yeah. know. So, at this point, he meets um, Gianna, an unemployed accountant, also from Texas. She comes to Kansas City, ready to begin work as John's executive assistant at his hydroponics business, the HydroGlow. The facial company. <laughs> he put her up in the hotel where he had... Assaulted, robbed Vicky, and when he returned, he savagely beat her for not assuming the position naked in the corner when he entered the room. So she failed to follow his instructions as a sub, I guess. Lord, this stuff is so... He then had rough sex with her. Gianna was not interested in extreme physical pain or photography, but he took pictures of her and left bruises on her body, took pictures of those bruises. Following the same pattern as before, he gave Gianna $100 and sent her home, ordering her to put her possessions in storage and then return to Overland Park. She followed his orders, but when she returned to Kansas, John continued to play too rough and abandoned her in the motel because she was so fearful she finally contacted the police police arrested John at his home with them they brought search warrants for his mobile home and for his ranch that he had 30 miles away from that mobile home at his ranch the authorities with the help of a cadaver sniffing dog found the bodies of Susette Isabella decomposing in in 55 gallon drums oh my gosh in Raymore, Missouri, police searched a storage facility where John had rented two lockers mm-hmm. There, also in fifty five gallon drums drums, were the bodies of Sheila and Debbie Faith and Beverly Bonner. That's awful. Most of their their causes of death were mostly attributed to one or two blows to the head. So blunt force trauma right a former acquaintance said that john may have been a member of the cult involving bondage rape and torture Mm -hmm. according to the informant john's job in the cult was to recruit women so apparently this cult did exist i I know we were talking about it earlier on whether or not he made Mm -hmm. it up so it did exist to some extent because someone kind of blew the whistle on him and and gave them up to the police. But uh, they said that these women were raped, tortured. There was a witness that was part of this cult who remains unnamed, saw John's participation in three different rituals in Kansas City where no one was killed, but the women were tortured extensively, sometimes even carving their face and abdomen and cutting off some body parts.
0: Oh, nope, 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 nope. I don't care who you are. You cannot consent to that kind of thing. No Nope. Nope, that's where you take it too far. I'm, I'm no longer saying what you do is your own business behind your own door. No. No limbs. Nope. All limbs are mine.
1: That's, that is not okay. In January 2003, Judge John Anderson III sentenced John to death two times over and handed out a life sentence for Lisa Stacy's killing. Authorities have now located her daughter, Tiffany. So the four-month-old baby Tiffany is alive and well. She is still living with John's older brother in Hammond, Indiana. It's been completely clarified that John's brother... Mm-hmm. had no knowledge of this being a fake adoption. He, they thought everything was legit. They went and did all the paperwork correctly afterwards. Oh, so they did actually... Documents. They filed everything. They Because of the forged documents that they had, Yeah. probably because they were out of state or something, they let them move along with the adoption completely. Or
0: so, because the mom isn't alive anymore, right?
1: Well, so. at that point... Yeah. She was just disappeared. Well, right. But I mean
0: sorry. Wait, so did they did they end up
1: being able to keep the baby? So she wasn't identified as baby Tiffany until she was a high school student. Oh my god. So she lived her entire life with John's brother. Wow. I feel like this was on an episode of Law and Order. Maybe. So for all intents and purposes, they raised her as their own daughter. She knew no different. Let me see. They found no foul play on the brother's side. He
0: mm-hmm. thought
1: all the documents were legal. According to the authorities, Tiffany has now been made aware of her true identity as well as her mother's. And when she was told this, she was in her, She was a senior in high school. Okay at this point and she was preparing to meet her biological father shitty can you imagine being a senior in high school and being told that your mother was killed no like that by know? some guy that and thinks that he's a slave master stolen essentially yeah and i mean hopefully she had a good life with her parents but mm-hmm. adoptive parents so yeah really crazy story um he is known as a couple of things so he's aka the slave master aka the first internet serial killer because he used some of the ads were online yeah to try and grab these women and aka the barrel murderer because he had Hmm. them all in in barrels so I mean a couple different aliases for him uh don't we like boat? any of them. I was gonna say I don't like <laughs> any of
0: them. I really don't like the slave master.
1: Like so, gross. No, Get out that's of here. disgusting. Um, not my kind of thing. We can't say it enough. If that's your thing, do it. Absolutely. I mean, and do you with consent, but be careful. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> be very, very careful. Obviously, all these women were going. They weren't being truthful with their families, with their friends, of what was going on. Right. Because it sounds like they knew, to some extent, at least two of them knew that they were going out to this situation where they were going to be a sub. Right. But for some of them, I don't even know if they knew
0: right. what well, they and were walking into. That's kind of where I like. I almost get tired of, I feel like we're constantly, and I, I'm the one that I think is most guilty of this, but I think in general... People are always like, you know, do what you do behind closed doors with consent. I've said it a million times. You've said it a million mm-hmm. times. But there comes a point, too, where you're like, this is sick. This is wrong. You're, and people put themselves in unsafe situations. Right. And you're dealing with people that obviously have certain type of sexual depravities right. when it gets to, like, that serious and that extent. And I'm not victim-blaming in any type of way. I'm just saying, like, at some point we have to just acknowledge mean, that some of these mean, things
1: aren't okay. Right. I mean, do it with someone that you know. Trust, trust. Maybe not with strangers off the internet. Yeah, that would be a good start. Um, talk to someone about it. You might find people. Maybe
0: they have a mutual friend. They right? don't live across the United States, right? All you don't have the good lie places to, your family to start
1: about meeting them or moving across country for so. Yeah. just... Um, if you're lying to your family about system. it, there's something wrong. <laughs> Absolutely, use the buddy system. Yeah, yeah. it's just
0: make good choices.
1: <laughs> yeah, be safe, especially with the internet like it is nowadays. Yeah, I'm just saying if you're gonna go meet someone or or do what you're gonna do, just just take just take some damn freaking safety measures. Right, and that's the thing. That's why I'm saying
0: we don't we're not victim blaming, but we are saying like you can take steps to be safer.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a crazy story. So all in all, um, he killed a lot of women. Um, really glad he didn't kill Baby Tiffany, but still. Yeah. What a life. To what live. a
0: bizarre story. Yeah. To go from like check fraud to, some BDSM serial killer.
1: Right. Yikes! Weird stuff. And and I'm not saying that there wasn't much going on in his childhood that led up to it or that built up to this. Um, but nothing overt. Nothing that's reported. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! So a little bit of catfishing too, just like a uh, totally that last story. One totally. guy pretending to be a CEO. Should we do a catfish series? Apparently we are. Yeah. I I don't know how we uh, want to close this. How do we want to close this? Have a safe word. Have a safe word with your friends. Safe word with your lover.
0: Those are different kinds of safe words, just that to be correct. clear. Correct. I have the type of in case of emergency. Do you remember what my safe word is? Nope. That's helpful.
1: I have a really bad memory. God damn it. I need to make sure Kara knows does. what it is. Okay. Yeah.
0: I was going to say, I know Kara <laughs> knows what it is. Don't send us your safe word, but... <laughs>
1: I actually kind of do if you have really funny safe words I want to hear it
0: oh if you have a story behind your safe word Ooh. send it to us and you can do that by emailing us at a astrangerdangerpodcast at gmail.com you can follow us on instagram at astrangerdangerpodcast
1: you can follow us on facebook stranger danger colon a true crime podcast and you can go directly to the group page which is stranger danger colon murder lovers that's the one and twitter at SD True Crime Pod. Thank you
0: so much. Happy quarantine. Bye. Bye.